Welcome to Federal Insights, sponsored by Verizon. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Brian Tromsky. He's the managing partner of federal government and public safety for Verizon Wireless. Lamont Copeland is the managing director of federal solutions architecture for the Verizon Business Group. And Scott Anderson, a distinguished architect at Verizon Federal. Good to have you all with us. And I want to talk about uh, modernization and the evolution of the network future network strategies. What are the best objectives as federal agencies look to move their networks to the next generation of technology and capability? What's what's the underlying driver that they should be trying to get to with this with this effort? Lamont? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that are underpinning um, what they need to do with the modernization of their networks is looking at a couple things of like you know, with the rapid change of technology, rapid change of everything that's being introduced to um, service different mission sets, uh, you got to look at what the infrastructure that is there today. There's a lot of aging infrastructure that the government has to start working through and getting on so that they can bring in a lot of these latest technologies to meet more of the mission set that they're trying to solve for, whether it's something with public safety and trying to protect the nation, whether it's um, something with the military to try to make sure they have a lot of situational awareness um, or anything in between, you know, even with the healthcare side and making sure that we're providing the proper um, benefits and things to the, the nation. To be able to leverage all this technology, a lot of the infrastructure needs to be looked at, a lot of the technology needs to be reviewed and then understanding of how to then build that plan to evolve um, the technology itself appropriately. And there's a lot more needs of this data, as I'm saying here. Um, there's a lot of things that require a lot of data, a lot of information understanding, a lot of dissemination of data everywhere across the, their enterprise, um, both inside of the um, agencies themselves and then how they then reach to some of the data centers that they go get this data from. So um, a lot of it's based on the mission focus on how do you then you know leverage a lot of this technology to get to the data. And then finally, it's the mobility of our, our uh, community. Um, you know, we are still working through, um, you know, COVID and, and all those things, but we're still, you know, very remote. We've got remote workers. we got people that are working at the borders. we got people that are working inside of um, different facilities, and they need to be able to have the ability to touch this data at any moment in time um, to be able to answer questions or, or do their day-to-day jobs. So the evolution of technology, evolution of these infrastructures need to be uh, um, taken into consideration on how do you one, meet the mission set, two, manage mobility, and then three, just, you know, get the right things in place to be able to support the the, um, the day-to-day activities that the government is working through. Yeah, it sounds like with all of the mobile users and cloud instances and data storage, the topologies have really changed a lot. And so you have to update them to update your network because of the, that locational aspect of it. Fair to say? Yes, that is correct. That, that's very fair. Sorry, Lamont. That's very fair to say, Tom. I mean, that is that is what's going on right now. The, you know, as as Lamont talked about, you know, the, the government agencies are looking at what they have. In many cases, they haven't changed things, but neither have commercial companies. Call net the networks that were designed in the '90s and the 2000s as footsie pops, right? You got a hard outer shell, and you got a soft, gooey center. Well. Somebody took that soft, gooey center of their Tootsie Pops and moved it out to the cloud. And that really changes how you do security. That changes how you do routing. That changes how you actually implement that new network of the future. Uh, And Lamont also mentioned, you know, as we kind of head down this path, you know, it's all about how do we help the customer get to where they need to be? Uh, They are delivering their mission, and our mission is to help them deliver it. 
All right. So given these different objectives, greater service of mobile clients, getting to the data, supporting the new types of digital related missions or digitally based missions, what does the emerging network start to look like? Give us a sense of what its components and, and technologies are that make it up. Yeah, so I'll address that one there, Tom, and building off of the great uh, comments made by Lamont and Scott. So one that's near and dear to our heart, if you look at something like 5G, right? And we'll take something as simple as drones, right? We all know that drones are here. They've been here for a while as we watched, unfortunately, during the first Gulf War, right? And using uh, drone technologies. Um, but what we're going to see in terms of drones is actually more mainstream, right? And we're starting to build off of those, you know, foundations as the modernization process continues, things like cloud technology, right? So if we look at something like a drone, one of the biggest issues with a drone, we're talking about lower yield drones is keeping a drone up in the air for a very long time, right? So the more weight that you put to a drone, the less uptime do you have in the drone in terms of fly time, right? So how do you offload weight, right? Well, you'd start taking things like compute off of the drone, right? You'd start taking uh, battery weight off of there. And how are you going to do that? Well, if I don't have to do the compute on the drone and I can put that in the cloud and I can then actually do what is called edge computing or mobile edge computing, extending that cloud closer to that particular drone, right? I start to lessen the weight. I don't need as much battery time or I can actually supplement the battery time where the compute storage or that CPU that was on the drone is now replaced by a bigger battery and I can keep the drone up and running, right? And then when you start bringing in technology like 5G and advanced communication in terms of high-speed data, you start going out of line of sight. So you can start bringing technology like AR, VR, where you have the pilot, he or she is a remote area. They put on a pair of goggles and they can actually fly the drone in real time, right? Unlike doing, you know, pre-static waypoints, they go from point A to point B and back, right? Well, I have other vectors, right? I want to now go to point C. I want to go to point D, right? And when we start looking at where drones will start coming to play and using technologies like mobile edge computing and 5G, it's things like the VA, right? The ability to do, deliver medication to veterans, right? It could be even homeless veterans in some cases, right? Or residents. You start looking at search and rescue, obviously with our hurricane efforts down in Yeon, right? Where, you know what? I don't have so many helicopters, right? Can I actually have low aerial drones actually surveil areas that are remote, a barrier island or inside of an infrastructure, right? Maybe it's a large garage where I don't want to send uh, men and women into those places. I'd rather say a drone in there and actually do a video surveillance before I actually put that team in there, right? So I think that's where I get really excited when you start seeing this technology. And we see a lot of this for 5G beyond a smartphone, beyond a tablet. It's going to take that, I would say, in my mind, where we've seen 10 years ago, IoT was the buzzword. I started thinking like IoT 2.0, right? Actually ingesting technology as mobility is matured, as cloud is matured is really pushing at the edge. And you can really see it as something simple as a drone and keeping the uptime greater just by lessening the payload of that particular drone. So the implication is that the 5G as an outdoor broadband type of service is ubiquitous now that can enable these types of applications? Correct, yeah. Yeah, in some cases we're doing uh, drone, connected drones on 4G. It only gets better with 5G technology and the more capabilities that you have. Right. And I guess, you know, imagery can move with greater speed and larger objects of software, I guess you might. Correct. Yeah. I mean, search and rescue, right? So if you want to go into a very large area and think about it, right, you can cover a very large area. You could actually have 20, 30 drones autonomously flying, right? 
And then they're actually searching. And when something happens, right, there's a quick response. Um, they're actually at object detection, right? And then we actually recalibrate and communicate to all those drones to say, hey, let's do a wide area circle here and start zooming in, right? And then relaying that information, right? That's going to lock a lot of different technologies, especially like if you look at something like police departments, we're very excited. We're actually going to the IACP conference this weekend. And, you know, a lot of departments don't have a helicopter unit. Right. I was up with Boston PD. They don't have a helicopter unit. Right. But imagine actually having a drone program that actually gives more access, not just to fire and EMS, but other public health or forest service, you know, or search and rescue. It unlocks a lot of different things of potential for public safety as well as government agencies. And let me ask you also just to continue for a moment on the 5G question. And any of you can maybe answer this. And that is what about the idea of backhaul that is wireless as opposed to having dedicated lines or fiber optic and this kind of thing. We're hearing more and more, you know, the movement of large data sets around or or the synchronizing of data that may not necessarily need land and and, and, and physical cabling. Correct. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll answer that one and I'll, I'll turn it to Lamont to have some color commentary. But there is actually a huge need, right, where traditionally we've gone from what we call wireless backup or fixed wireless access using cellular technology to be, if the primary goes down, right, handing off to the backup of a cellular connection out there be a 3G, 4G, and now 5G. Now as 5G and actually as 4G has evolved over the last couple of years, we're actually seeing more primary connections, right, actually using this technology. And I think where it gets exciting is actually offering more digital services to the citizens by using this technology, right? So think about having uh, an example would be, and you know, Lamont mentioned COVID, right? How do I actually have drive-through testing or vaccination sites, right? Where I want to do this in the parking lot, I set up a tech, right? How am I getting connectivity there, recording all the information? You can do that, right? By using 4G and 5G technology. So I can do real-time analytics in terms of um, positive, negative tests. I can actually do real-time data scanning information right there, doing image collection of the forms, right, um, as well as vaccination cards, which unlocks a lot of different capabilities which you have, or even kiosk, right? We see this today, um, like having kiosks for government services, right? If you're trying to get certain paperwork or submit things in there, the office is closed. The office could actually stay up 24-7, similar to what ATM machines have done the last 30, 40 years. You could actually have those more digital services, and those are powered by actually these connections. And where we tie the modernization is the government can actually put these kiosks or other locations in non-government locations, right? Because they can actually have that connection locked down to their network using things like zero trust, that they manage those connections and those devices and actually have greater outreach to the citizen community. Lamont, final word before we break here. Yeah, no, and there's a lot of other aspects too with that using the FWA and the wireless in place. Because if you take it into the standpoint of the enterprises and what's happening inside of these buildings, you tie that into an SD WAN technology to be able to then service those applications to be able to support that. So now you have a building which has the ability to use wireless and wireline either as a primary or a, se or a secondary connection, depending on the um, what the need of the the, the uh, building is. And you able to leverage and support the performance of that application, support the support the data that's coming back and forth between um, what's happening with your mission sets and what's happening with how you're supporting the citizens, as Brian is saying there. So there's different ways of leveraging that technology to be able to to provide a way of managing application performance, but also then too a, a way to be able to control costs too as well with the uh, wireless line coming in. 
Um, so there are a multitude of ways that you can use that. Also, too, you can use it in instances where we know that there's a lot of changes right now with, in the industry to, to remove TDM lines, the TDM services there. Wireless is a very good way to be able to come in, for example, sure. to replace a lot of these POTS lines, to be able to take out POTS lines. And then you, and so you don't have to go in and trench in or, or build into some of these um, older buildings, leverage wireless to come in and provide that same service. And then be able to leverage that newer technology to be able to support whatever's happening, whether it's an elevator um, that uses sure. a POTS line or um, a telephone line. So a lot okay. of different um, assets. Well, some really great use cases here, some good concrete stuff, but we're going to take a short break. My guests today are Lamont Copeland. He's the Managing Director of Federal Solutions Architecture for the Verizon Business Group. Brian Tromsky is the Managing Partner of Federal Government and Public Safety for Verizon Wireless. And Scott Anderson is the Distinguished Architect at Verizon Federal. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This is Federal Insights, Infrastructure Evolution, sponsored by Verizon here on Federal News Network. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Federal Insights Infrastructure Evolution, sponsored by Verizon here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Brian Shromsky, the managing partner of federal government and public safety for Verizon Wireless, Lamont Copeland, the managing director of federal solutions architecture for the Verizon Business Group, and Scott Anderson, distinguished architect at Verizon Federal. And one of the big initiatives that is in the federal government is the idea of better user experience, better customer experience. And this is by mandate, by law, and by what agencies really want to do. And so they are looking at modernization, including of their networks, to be able to improve customer and employee experience. Tell us how that can happen with some of the new network technologies. Scott? Yeah. So uh, first of all, you heard uh, you heard Lamont earlier and, and you heard Brian earlier, you know, talk about the user, talk about, you know, the importance and value of the user. And one of the things that we want to do and, 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 you know, everybody actually so far in the call has mentioned it, you know, is understanding the customer's applications. Back in the old days, we used to call it the enterprise architecture. Um, literally, you would have this massive, I mean, just massive uh, eye chart. And, you know, it would say, if you want to save a PDF, use this application. Right? I mean, they were down to that level. And they were very cool. Uh, but the reality is none of the enterprise architectures of the past would actually consider the transportation protocols. How did it work? Uh, and, and, you know, Brian mentioned the the concepts of 5G and the value of, of controlling drones with 5G and the value of that ability. But the other side of that is, you know, users have specific needs as they do their day-to-day -day job, as they live within their functional world. Uh, and, and Lamont mentioned, you know, remote workers in COVID, that, that reverses how you do everything in your life, that reverses how you, you function. And so one of the things that we have, we have a new concept that we brought out a little over a year ago called NAS. Uh, everything's as a service now, and this is the network as a service. So N small AAS, uh, network as a service. Within NAS or network as a service, there is a really important concept. It's called application-aware routing. Now, what application-aware routing does is really take the next step. 
right? So for example, let's go back to, to Brian's drone flying around. Uh, you know, it's on 5G, it's dumping a lot. In fact, because it's on 5G, it's probably dumping a lot more video data. Uh, and we need to determine in that video data, what are we critically looking for? Um, and, it, and it may just be that that drone, in the case, and, and Brian's awesome example, right, of a search and rescue mission, any video with movement becomes critical video, all the rest of the video you can throw away. Well, that's what application-aware routing allows us to do. We can immediately say, oh, drone, drone 16 has seen movement. Uh, drone 17 has a clear infrared image of a, of a body that is warm, right? So still alive, still pumping blood. Uh, so those are two things that we can do within application-aware routing. Now, that information then can immediately be routed out of the locale where the people are and sent to somebody that can act on it, right? And there's hundreds of other examples. My favorite example is one that uh, Lamont will remember. It's very painful. Uh, we had a customer that was screaming and yelling because they were doing an all-organization Teams meeting, and that all-organization Teams meeting kept failing. And, and they were talking to us about, hey, Teams is failing. Well, with application-aware routing, I can fix that problem very quickly. I simply go to one location, connect to that location, and I change the importance of the application Teams. Now, all of a sudden, Teams is the most important application on the network. You don't lose packets. You don't lose connections. And when you're talking about that remote telephone user who's dialed into the Teams meeting, they now have that much higher quality connection, that much better connection all the way through, and we're able to empower the network to respond to the organization. And let me just follow up with a quick question. Can that activity of that network-aware routing, can that be automated? That is, you don't have to have a console operator or a big programming stream to, uh, to accomplish that? That's an awesome question, Tom, and, and absolutely. Uh, so, of course, you know, obviously, and we'll 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 do the the linear progression. It starts with the concepts of uh, machine learning, uh, and basically, what we're going to do is we're going to apply the machine learning rules to gather information about how applications are used within the organization, about what they're doing with them, about where the failure points are. Right? It you can manage applications for a customer, but if nobody can log in, the application is useless. Right? So you got to understand how are they logging in. And where are they failing? What are the problems that they're experiencing? And build on that. So that's machine learning. We gather that data. We begin to apply the rules of machine learning, the min-max patterns, um, the, the various other patterns that apply to routing, uh, importance patterns. You know, and I could list 50 more, but I'll I'll stop there. Uh, and then beyond that, now we begin the concept of taking all that machine learning data that we've built, an understanding of what the customer has, and now we apply artificial intelligence. So we begin to look at what happens and the artificial intelligence takes the next step, right? Machine learning is going to respond, right? You and I are having a conversation. Uh, I suddenly decide to ship me a terabyte file. That's going yeah. to, you know, decay the connection between us. With artificial intelligence, they might say, you know what? We think Tom's going to send this file to Scott. It's, if it's this file, it's a terabyte. We need to change how the network responds to, to Tom's connection so that we don't swamp it with that terabyte file, which, you know, would have swamped sure. it for a very short time period. But, yeah. but basically, anyway, it's a sort awesome. of a latter-day quality of service gambit then. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It's quality of service on steroids. No, right. steroids are bad. Sorry. And in the time we have left, I wanted to get back to the security question and the idea of that uh, turned inside out Tootsie Roll pop. 
And that gets us to the question of security strategy agencies are also pursuing, and that is a secure access service edge, SASE, my guess is the term that they use for that. And how does the next set of networking technologies, upgrades, modernizations support that particular approach? Well, yeah, and there's a bunch of other things underneath. SASE is kind of an umbrella, right? When we start talking about service edge, uh, and you know, Brian talked about edge computing, and and uh, Lamont and Brian both talked about users and and how do we access things. So the first thing under SASE uh, is is what's called zero trust, uh, and zero trust is a very important uh, solution set for organizations to consider. First of all, because what zero trust does is allows the organization to, well, trust no one. Uh, that reduces the risk the organization is going to have. Um, unfortunately, and Verizon publishes a report every year. It's called the DBIR. Um, it's a nice acronym. stands for Data Breach Investigation Report. I've read uh, it. Last year. In, yeah, it's an, it's an awesome report. I, I highly recommend it. Verizon.com, DBIR. Anybody can download it. It's free to everybody. Uh, but last year, 2021, um, I have not read through the whole 2022 uh, one yet. But the 2021 um, report talked about the biggest security risk that we found. More than 50% of all attacks on corporate, government, and uh, uh, other entities that we deal with, more than 50% was what's called the person in the middle attack. I'm not going to use the old-fashioned sexist name of man in the middle. It's person in the middle. Uh, And the person in the middle attack basically is an attack where I send you a URL, right? Tom, your Amazon Prime has been canceled. You see that mail, you respond, you go, oh my God, I need my Amazon Prime. Uh, You click the the link, you go out, and of course, you enter your username, password, nothing happens. Most users go, oh, okay, no problem. Close it, start again, don't even think about it. That right there, you just gave a hacker your username and password, and you didn't even think about what you did, right? So that attack, those kinds of attacks, that's something that zero trust will remove. You don't get the person in the middle of attacks anymore. But then as we expand, right, and we we flipped the network, we had that hard Tootsie Pop. And the advantage of a Tootsie Pop is, for the most part, it'll protect you most of the time. The disadvantage of the Tootsie Pop is everybody knows where it is. With the move of the Tootsie Pop Center to the cloud, now all of a sudden you have this situation where you're actually physically being attacked in two locations. You're being attacked in your traditional network location and the cloud location. Uh, that's what the service edge begins to do. We we look at how can we control the edge? Where do we put uh, security aspects? Where do we change how mm-hmm. users can connect? And what do we do with that? So it is a very critical thing uh, and something that does require a lot of consideration. What should agencies do first toward network modernization? Yeah, one of it is always understand your network, understand what you have, understand your assets. So then you can have a full picture of what you need to do uh, and then understand what your uh, what your uh, outcomes and performance that you want to achieve, so that then you can take all that into consideration to find the right technology, the right partner, and the right uh, solution to move forward with it to involve your involve your uh, your network. 
All right. Very rich discussion. We are out of time. I wish we had more. I want to thank today's guests. Lamont Copeland is the Managing Director of Federal Solutions Architecture for the Verizon Business Group. Brian Tromsky is the Managing Partner of Federal Government and Public Safety for Verizon Wireless. And Scott Anderson is a Distinguished Architect at Verizon Federal. I'm Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Verizon. Thank you for listening to Federal Insights, sponsored by Verizon on Federal News Network.